I'm Dr. Brian Goldman, host of the CBC podcast, The Dose. Each week, we answer vital health questions that will help you thrive, like, what does my mental health have to do with my gut? How can I prevent melanoma? How much sleep do I really need? And how can I manage my health without a family doctor? I chat with the top experts to bring you the latest evidence in plain language, all in about 20 minutes. Find The Dose on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Hi, What on Earth podcast listeners. It's me, Laura. We have a podcast bonus for you this week, and it required an early morning wake-up call for me to connect with my guest who lives on the East Coast. I hope you enjoy it. Delayed because of the pandemic, the UN Climate Change Summit in Glasgow is now set to be held in six months, and the United States is bound to draw much of the attention given its recent rebound, rejoining the Paris Agreement to limit global warming and making bold new commitments under President Joe Biden. Richard Duke was a special advisor on climate change to former President Barack Obama. He is back in government, this time working under Biden's climate change envoy, John Kerry. Mr. Duke, hello. Good morning. Since the last time that you were in government, the U.S. has gone through four years with a president that largely rejected climate science and pulled out of the Paris Agreement. How will the world trust and know that this time the U.S. is really back in the climate change game? You can look at the brief but extraordinary record of President Biden in this first 100 days as the best basis for confidence in where we are headed. You can see that in just that short period of time, President Biden has followed through on his clear campaign commitments to move ahead ambitiously on all sectors and gases uh, to cut emissions within the United States. And then crucially, given that the United States and Canada together account for well under 15 percent of global greenhouse gas emissions, he has also followed through on his commitment to pull the world together and encourage faster progress to deal with the climate crisis globally. And we are grateful for the partnership with Prime Minister Trudeau in Canada in being the first official bilateral meeting of President Biden and uh, Prime Minister Trudeau. It was the first official bilateral meeting for President Biden. And we're extremely uh, excited about what came out of that summit. Just to give you a sense of it, we have now over half the world's economy on track to keep 1.5C within reach. This comes with, of course, the uh, ambitious commitment from the United States and Canada to cut emissions by 2030, but also joined then by the European Union and UK uh, putting their ambitious targets into law, setting a pace setting new target in the case of the United Kingdom, and Japan moving in a serious way to cut its emissions faster by 2030, also Argentina, South Africa moved its deadline for peaking its emissions a full decade earlier, the 2025. And we see that this journey isn't over. We have commitments from Korea and South Africa to put forward ambitious new economy-wide pledges by 2030 this year. And so we look forward to working with Prime Minister Trudeau and Canada to continue this diplomatic effort in the run-up to the important climate meeting in the fall called the Conference of the Parties in Glasgow. 
And uh, Canada has been and remains a crucial partner to us in this effort. And, and I want to get in some more into that uh, Canada-U.S. Uh, partnership. But first, I just want to talk about two countries that, that you didn't focus on in your answer. Um, because at that recent Earth Day summits, um, some people looked at those other big emitters, China and India, not making any new commitments and suggested that they're waiting to see if the U.S. will actually do something instead of talking about it. So I'm wondering what's the key action that you're aiming for to send that signal? Well, it is important to note that first, there were important contributions made by both India and China at the Leader Summit on Climate and in the run-up to it. In the case of India, they have committed to working closely with the United States on implementing in partnership an extraordinarily ambitious goal to deploy 450 gigawatts of renewables in this decade. And we are eager to partner with uh, India in order to make that happen with investments and technical assistance and policy work. In the case of China, there was also important signaling from President Xi around um, strictly controlling coal generation projects and a commitment to implement the Kigali Amendment to the Montreal Protocol, which is uh, a deal that in fact, Canada and the United States partnered to help forge back in 2016 that in and of itself will help to cut emissions of, uh, of greenhouse gases sufficiently to reduce warming up to 0.5 centigrade, almost a half degree centigrade of avoided warming through that single agreement. And now China has committed to implement that. And the U.S. just put forward regulations to implement but, it as well. So we're making headway where we can, and we're continuing to pressure uh, to right. ensure that we move faster beyond that. But on your front, on the U.S. front, what is the most important action to, to send the signal out to the world? Is it passage of the U.S. Infrastructure Act, bringing in the clean electricity standard? Well, as in Canada, the United States is taking a uh, comprehensive approach to investing in climate change solutions, including through the American Jobs Plan, also setting common sense standards for things like uh, appliance efficiency, also uh, vehicle efficiency and electrification, and um, also things like uh, controlling the wasted methane from uh, oil and gas operations to ensure that we uh, plug those leaks and um, recover that valuable product and avoid a super pollutant um, called methane in this context. And what you see in the United States is a very fast start to invest and set standards across uh, these areas where we can save consumers money by cutting their energy bills and avoiding these kinds of uh, waste of um, things like natural gas uh, when it leaks out of the system mm -hmm. or waste of uh, fuel that we uh, are using in our vehicles. Um, by putting um, a more efficient and electrified fleet on the road. Um, at the summit, the U.S. pledged to cut emissions in half by the end of the decade from 2005 levels. Canada has only committed to the minimum 40%. What's your view of what your next-door neighbor is willing to do? Well, when you look at the two countries, there's really much more in common than different. And when you uh, kind of scale to the size of the two countries, both are investing in climate solutions at a similar scale, and that includes the uh, crucial investments that Canada is moving forward with under its national climate plan from last December, 
and also from its April uh, 19th new budget. Um, and that's going to be uh, creating jobs and also uh, propelling innovation that will make sure that both countries what? are well positioned. You sound like a spokesman um, for the Canadian government. <laughs> well, I think I, I want to just clarify that there's really a lot in common here, that, that both countries see this as an economic opportunity and uh, a real uh, chance to um, build back better in our case, but also to uh, just create jobs in both countries and across the integrated economies. And then on top of that, you see that both are uh, really committed to a net zero uh, economy by 2050. And I think the key point here is that the work that Canada is putting in motion with these investments and with its commitment uh, to a 40 to 45 percent reduction by 2030 puts Canada clearly on track to that crucial outcome. That's really the prize here, is to get to zero. Can, can I just, though, talk about the, the, the president's plan to spend billions of dollars on pandemic recovery that, that involves a lot of initiatives aimed at making infrastructure cleaner and greener, developing technology aimed at fighting or adapting to climate change, and yet the president has been adamant, adamant it will be a Buy America recovery. And people in Canada look at that and go, uh-oh, this isn't going to be great for Canada. Does it close the door to Canada and the U.S. working in tandem on these kinds of project, projects to Canada being able to sell its technology and its wares to the United States? Canada and the U.S. have a longstanding partnership on the economy, on security, on really all matters, and, and that continues and, and deepens uh, under the Biden administration. And when you look at the climate and energy space, we see that uh, there has been um, very close alignment between the two countries on things like uh, the approach to um, ensuring that we have fuel efficient and electrified vehicles that save consumers money, same thing for appliance standards, same thing across the board. And we expect that that alignment will continue and deepen. And we've already set up a structured effort under uh, Special Presidential Envoy for Climate Kerry and Minister Wilkinson uh, to ensure that that happens uh, across the board and, um, and really deeply um, building on a, a successful history. And so we have every confidence that there will be close economic integration and partnership uh, continuing as both countries move really at a very similar pace uh, by the end of this decade uh, towards a carbon-free uh, continental economy, uh, at least uh, at least in Canada and U.S., um, within, uh, within the next 30 years. Hi, I'm Sandra Bartlett. I produced the Salmon People podcast about the fight to save wild salmon. Now I'm back with The Poison Detectives, a podcast about a nasty chemical that's poisoning the world. Yes, poisoning the world. It's a man-made chemical family called PFAS, and there are more than 12,000 chemicals in this family. It's in the material that firefighting suits are made from, and one woman went on a quest to find out if it gave her firefighter husband cancer. This is one question, though. The federal government here is embracing carbon pricing in a big way. It's a centerpiece of the plan to, to help cut carbon emissions. I'm sensing your government doesn't seem too keen on the idea. We have taken a very hard look at what it is going to require to 
cut emissions in the U.S. economy to deliver on our nationally determined contribution. That's to say our, our 2030 emission reduction target of 50 to 52 percent below 2005 levels. And we see that there are many different ways to get there. You can um, do a bit more in uh, the land sector, uh, and that means you don't need quite as much out of the energy sector. Uh, you can do more in certain uh, parts of the energy sector and, and less in other parts. Um, and so uh, there's a lot of uncertainty in exactly what the pathway will look like. But what's clear and I think is common across uh, Canada and the U.S. is that we need to move very rapidly to carbon-free electricity, and we need to electrify these key end uses. Right. But why not and, cut? Car- um, why, why not then carbon pricing? I just want to understand why the U.S. doesn't seem to like the idea very much. Well, in addition to the fact that there's a, a lot of different uh, technical pathways to get to uh, our 2030 targets, and also to then net zero beyond that, there's many different policy packages that can make it possible, and. It, when you uh, look at something like the power sector, uh, there are um, serious uh, efforts underway by the administration and on the Hill to look uh, at incentives for renewables, which, by the way, um, last year was our biggest year for wind and solar ever in the United States on the strength of uh, falling costs and uh, innovative practices by by our um, businesses in that sector, so, so but also, but, but also, just gonna say, but, but, but because of uh, incentives that uh, uh, make that possible, and so, so incentives can be incredibly powerful. But in addition, just to finish a quick thought, in addition, we are looking very seriously at a clean electricity standard in the power sector, which has uh, a um, similar uh, efficiency in the way that it helps industry to invest with confidence. And it tackles uh, a very important part of the puzzle for us on uh, delivering on our target. And so there's lots of different ways to uh, make it happen. And um, for us, it starts with investment and jobs. And for Canada, we know that there's a, um, a carbon pricing approach that's a key part of the mix, but also a lot in common with investment approaches uh, and standards um, that we, you know, often align. I wa- okay, I want to talk about finance and investing and the energy sector for a moment. Um, I'm sure you know that Canada's former central bank governor, Mark Carney, who's now a UN envoy on climate change, uh, has been pressing banks and investment companies to, among other things, screen their portfolios for fossil fuel-related assets that he contends are going to be worthless as the world moves toward greener enterprises. And we've seen the result growing that there seems to be less investment in fossil fuels in general and certainly less investment in particular um, in the oil sands in Alberta. I'm wondering, what would the Biden administration do to encourage that shift, to encourage that change? Well, the uh, the question of investment is... Um, multifaceted. There's, uh, of course, the policy drivers that are crucial and where we need to do uh, a wide range of things that we've been talking about from investment to standards um, and in the case of Canada, uh, uh, carbon pricing um, and, and, and more beyond that. There's also opportunities around disclosure and regulation of the financial sector uh, that can help ensure that there's clarity for investors about uh, how climate change impacts what they're doing. And um, I think that 
we'll be looking to the full toolkit there and uh, certainly interested in ongoing dialogue with Canada um, in that regard. Do you think that that shift is a good idea to get to get investment out of fossil fuels? The, the goal for the Biden administration is to cut emissions and keep the 1.5C degree future in reach with the, the pace of global emission reductions that we need uh, to, to make that possible. And so the priority is on whatever will help us get that done most quickly and will help us to bolster our economy in the process. That doesn't require um, a particular approach to uh, any sector of the economy. What it requires is a comprehensive approach to the whole economy. And so that definitely involves transforming to carbon-free electricity by 2035, as uh, the president has made clear is a, um, a goal for the United States. And it involves this ambitious new 2030 target and a whole range of measures that go well beyond just the energy sector. We do need to make sure that we, um, in both Canada and the United States, pay attention to the crucial land sector, which is a, um, a major carbon sink in the United States and um, an important part of Canada's math as well. And we also need to look at things like uh, methane, which is a, um, a potent greenhouse gas that has uh, almost, uh, it almost rivals in importance CO2 um, in the next couple I, decades yeah. for keeping uh, keeping those warming I, goals within reach. Yeah. So we have to do all those things. I understand, but I just I'm just trying to figure out. I mean, the president, um, one of his first actions on, upon assuming office was to kill the Keystone XL pipeline. So I'm wondering, is there a place for the fossil fuel industry in the future of the United States? So in both countries, we see a uh, important focus on technologies like uh, carbon capture and storage that are uh, crucial in order to decarbonize the energy sector faster. And uh, Although I will note are, that there are a lot of critics who think carbon capture and storage is an unproven technology and is sometimes only used for enhanced oil recovery. And I'm just noting for you what the critics say about that. So carbon capture and storage is an important element in a broad toolkit. Uh, when you look at certain sectors like the cement industry, which we do need for uh, all kinds of applications from buildings to roads, there's really no pathway to get to carbon-free cement without carbon capture and storage because CO2 is, an, uh, is a process emission while you're making cement. And uh, so it's necessary to be able to capture and uh, safely either utilize or sequester underground that uh, that CO2 if you if you want to fully decarbonize the cement sector, which is so important globally. And for a lot of other industrial applications, it's a key technology as well. So we're uh, very appreciative that Canada has focused on investing in in that um, set of technologies. It's also, of course, the the step that's required in order to be able to do direct air capture and actually take CO2 out of the atmosphere uh, and get to uh, negative emissions through those technologies down the line. Sorry. So we, we need to uh, invest in that um, as, as well as, of course, really scaling things like renewables and electrifying uh, broadly and uses. Sorry, I got, I got trapped in that and I didn't let you answer about whether there is actually a place for the fossil fuel industry in the future of the United States. 
when you look across the uh, different analyses that we've done and external analyses, uh, all those show that there's um, uh, significant uh, fossil um, fossil fuel industry and fossil fuel production um, indefinitely in, in the United States and in Canada. And for us, the uh, opportunity is to cut the emissions profile, cut the emissions intensity of those sectors uh, through measures like uh, cutting leaks of methane that's a potent greenhouse gas, and also generally decarbonizing the sectors, including with technologies uh, like carbon capture and storage. The other thing to note is that both Canada and the United States have recognized, along with uh, key partners in Europe and Japan and Korea, among others, that the fossil industry is going to be crucial in the uh, core hydrogen future that we are headed towards. Hydrogen is going to become an increasingly essential energy carrier and a key way to decarbonize, especially the industrial sector, but also you can use it to create things like green ammonia, which then um, are available for fertilizer use, but even for things like uh, carbon-free international shipping. And so the same um, innovative companies that um, produce oil and gas today are extremely well positioned to lead us into a carbon-free hydrogen future as well. I've kept you beyond your time, and I just I just have one more question for you, and that is about the the the, the challenge that that Canada and the United States face jointly, as well as the globe. There is an argument that that, that countries like Canada and the U.S. have a historical responsibility to reduce emissions. Um, we have more and more technology, more and more funding to put toward it, and more know-how. So, do you think your country and mine shoulder a larger share of the global emissions challenge? There's no question that Canada and the United States both recognize the need to lead globally on climate change. And that starts most importantly, and we've heard this from other uh, major emerging economies very directly in our uh, bilateral discussions, that the thing that the world most wants from countries like Canada and the United States is the policies and measures that will transform our energy economy and our broader economy because when we do that, not only do we reduce emissions and help to keep 1.5C, a safer 1.5C future within reach, we also crucially scale up the solutions like wind and solar uh, and carbon capture and hydrogen that are going to then be available for the rest of the world to use as they move towards net zero. And we, we bring those costs down as we scale them up, and that makes it much easier for countries from India to Sub-Saharan Africa to uh, Latin America to uh, join us in this carbon-free future. Mr. Duke, the world will definitely be watching. Thank you very much for joining me. Okay, my pleasure. Have a good day. You too. Bye-bye. Richard Duke is a special advisor on climate change and foreign policy to the Biden administration. Love to hear what you think about what you just heard. Is Canada a crucial partner to the U.S. in the fight against climate change? Email us, earth at cbc.ca. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.